Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Before we turn to your essential political analysis for this week, I want to tell you about our wonderful partners at The Resident, where all rooms are designed to combine pure comfort with quintessential British style and design. Whether you're escaping to London for a romantic break or visiting the city with friends and family, there's no better place to stay in the heart of the neighbourhood without The Resident, you might not get to experience London and... Without the resident, we wouldn't be here on Whitehall Sources. Whitehall Sources, your essential, essential politics podcast, is brought to you in association with The Resident. The examples in the book that I give of institutions and individuals in various ways... Uh, exemplifies that, that sense of... Including Boris Johnson. That sense of defending their institution rather than than doing the job that, that, you know, protecting those they were there to serve. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. We're recording on Thursday, the 14th of September. I'm Callum MacDonald. Thanks very much for finding us. Thanks for being here. This is the second episode back of the new parliamentary term. So if you're not already following the podcast to make sure you get every episode, then please make sure you do. And if you've found us afresh, if you are new here, welcome. If you've been here since the start, which was nearly a year ago, then thanks for sticking around. And please make sure you tell your friends we're back, we're fresher than ever, and we're rearing to go. Right, also here, as ever, Kirsty Buchanan, former special advisor to Theresa May. Hello, Kirsty. Good morning to you. And I'm really pleased to say that joining us as well on this episode where we're going to be considering primarily the vision of Prime Ministers and how it gets, well, a bit blurry, how it gets blown off course. <laughs> uh, we've got Chris Wilkins, who was Director of Strategy for Theresa May as well. Hello, Chris. Hi, good morning. It's great, great to, to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, thank you. And joining us later in the podcast, David Muir, who was Director of Strategy for Gordon Brown from 2008 to 2010. You might remember those years. 
for the financial crisis, of course. So we'll bring in David to the conversation in the next little while. First, though, want to start with a couple of issues that have been dominating the news this week. Um, and I suppose, first of all, Kirsty, to start with you, it, does it feel like we are ramping up to a general election? That's the narrative this week, that actually we're getting policy announcements, we're getting policy discussions. It feels like both parties are really gearing us up for big discussions on big things, like, for example, the triple lock on pensions. Uh, yes, the minute that Parliament came back was effectively the firing of the starting gun for the uh, next general election. You know, brace yourself, people. This is going to be the longest campaign uh, in living memory, I fear. Um, although uh, I do note again this week that whilst uh, Downing Street are still struggling to get on the front foot this week, um, the Labour have made considerable gains on front footery and holding some of the headlines this week so their comms and their messaging has clearly sharpened up and we're beginning to see some flesh on the bones of uh, what a Labour government might look like. Mm. I want to start with the triple lock because it has been dominating through the week. So the triple lock on pensions is this sort of safeguard, I suppose, to make sure that the state pension doesn't lose its value. Now, there have been lots of talks uh, about scrapping it, reforming it, changing it. Basically, it means that the state pension uh, will increase by the highest of one of these three. So whichever one of these is highest, the triple lock guarantees that the pension will rise alongside that. So average earnings, inflation, or 2.5%. Gosh, remember when 2.5% was a number that we used, to, <laughs> we used to use a lot. So that's the triple lock. It guarantees the state pension uh, rises in value. Chris, what do you make of the narrative around it this week? Because it feels like both parties have kind of put changing, reforming, scrapping the triple lock in play, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I think they have. I think a few quotes are being flown as well to see um, kind of what the response is, is out there because the triple lock is something that, I think, you know, it's uh, become totemic and, and what widely thought that, you know, if it's something that you do decide to get rid of or play around with, then you're going to take a electoral hit and that's probably probably particularly so for the Tories. Their um, voters, you know, typically are, are sort of the, the old voters who come out to, to support them. So, um People generally think, you know, don't touch it. It's being, like I say, kites are being flown about it to see kind of what the what the response is. Um, and at the start of the week, there was some talk about the fact that the government were looking at this because it's related to benefits as a whole. And there was some talk of retaining the triple lock, but actually um, upgrading benefits at a lower level, which I think would have been a sort of outrageous uh, thing for them to pursue. It's now become looking at this policy as a whole. But what is interesting that both both sides do seem to be looking at it because there's a wide sense, I think, in Westminster, and to be honest, has been for a number of years that this thing is unsustainable. It was something. I mean, the official narrative is that pensions in the UK are historically low, and this is a policy that helps to sort of upgrade them and bring them into line with with other countries. Um, the truth is, it was a, a political fix that uh, David Cameron and George Osborne came up with to win over uh, the older vote. Um, for an election, which it did very successfully, um, and now we're sort of slightly uh, stuck with it. So there's a wider sense in Westminster that it's not sustainable over the longer term. The question is really just when it goes um, and whether it goes completely or whether there's mm. some sort of fudge that they can get together. But I think they're flying kites now to see, you know, actually how severe is the response and is it something that they can fiddle with. 
There was an interesting thought this week as well that there, there could be some sort of agreement, I guess, between both parties to reach some sort of conclusion on the triple lock, which is quite an interesting thought. And I wonder if it's, you know, it could be along the lines of um, we both parties commit to in a, in a few years time, the triple lock will no longer exist. And so actually there's some sort of joined approach. Does that seem realistic, Kirsty, that there'd be some sort of collegiate cross party working on this? Uh, no, I think that falls into the category of I believe it when I see it, right? Especially especially this side of an election. Um, I mean, look, for those of us that are old enough to remember, and I'm, uh, I fear that both Chris and I are, uh, this was largely a weed uh, inspired by Gordon Brown's um, uh, 75 pence yeah. increase in pensioners' yeah. Uh, in, in the pension because at the time I think it was linked just to inflation. Inflation mm. was very low, uh, which meant that in the particular year they got uprated by the grand total of 75p and journalists like I made uh, great uh, great capital out of this, uh, which is how the, the, the kind of triple lock uh, came about really. Um, but, you know, when it first came about, it was kind of in that like hundreds of millions to support. It now costs about 11 billion and with an increasingly aging population, uh, there are estimates that it could rise by 2050 from anything from another 5 billion to 45 billion. Yikes. I don't know how many government departments that would swallow up in terms of, you know, mm. uh, similar levels of funding. Well, but it's more than the entire defence budget, I believe. Wow. Yeah. That won't please Ben Wallace. Um, <laughs> so so uh, Chris is 100% right. Something absolutely needs to be done about it. But like many things, you know, giving uh, is very easy in politics. Taking away is a infinitely more difficult concept. It's arguably more difficult for the Conservatives than it is for Labour, because obviously it's a, it's a core Conservative vote that you've got there. Um, but I think this side of an election, I would be very surprised if people don't harden back into uh, something around a commitment to it for you know, mm. many, you know, many years to come or a few years to come or the next parliament or, you know, and, and kick it into the long grass. Uh, I can see a world where you might have a review, but... You know, this falls into the category of, uh, you know, social care funding as well. You know, it's it's very expensive. It's very difficult to tackle. Uh, we get a lot of hot promises about, you know, tackling the difficult decisions in life and politics and, uh, yeah, and a lot of uh, kicking cans down the road. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Let's continue, shall we, with some of the policy whip round of this week. And uh, and Labour, uh, interesting to focus on because of their plans for immigration, um, as Sir Keir Starmer has announced even just today, actually, this morning. Uh, so Keir Starmer is meeting EU law enforcement officers in The Hague as he announces his plans. Uh, he's going to be at Europol today, which is part of his plan. Uh, let me just run through some of the coverage of this uh, really today. Uh, he has uh, written a, a long piece um, in the Sun, and he's on an interview with Times Radio and in the Times newspaper where his sort of direction on, on uh, illegal migration is to crack down on criminal people smuggling gangs. Uh, basically, he wants an agreement, doesn't he, with... Um, uh, with Europe to sort of establish some sort of link whereby uh, people can be sent back, as it were. Uh, he wants to treat traffickers like terrorists. Uh, he wants to scrap the Rwanda plan. 
He wants to be able to freeze the assets of people smugglers. He wants to restrict their movement. He wants to expand the use of civil orders that are used to target uh, serious criminals, drug traffickers, etc. And yes, this EU-wide returns agreement for asylum seekers who comes to Br- who come to Britain. He says the quid pro quo of any deal such as accepting quotas of migrants in the EU, would be for future negotiations with Brussels. Uh, Chris, let's come to you on this. We've all been crying out, haven't we, for Sir Starmer to dish out some plans, and here he is with quite a detailed one. Really interesting that this is the policy issue that they've chosen to sort of make one of the central uh, points of of their sort of uh, back-from-summer kickoff, I suppose. Um, You know, it's widely thought that this would be a weak flank for him, that it's an area that the the Tory party uh, are really happy to talk about, and they've definitely increased the salience of the issue over the past sort of uh, year of 18 months by by talking about stop the boats, etc., etc. But... He's completely leaned into this thing, which which people think he'd be vulnerable on. And I think, in general, be quite happy with the way it's been reported. You know, very hard language about, um, as they applying these sort of terrorist orders to uh, smuggling gangs. Um, you know, really, some of the language he's actually used in his article and in the interview is, you know, really uh, very robust. And so uh, that's interesting, and, and that's been widely reported. So I think they'll be pleased with that. It goes alongside, of course... You know him presenting himself on the world stage increasingly. So as you say, in the Hague, meeting you with such, which obviously plays to his background as for former director of public prosecution. So um, he uh, is able to sort of visually look the part as well. And we know that it's going to be followed up with visits to see President Macron and and also visit to see uh, President Trudeau uh, in, in Canada. So he's really starting to step up and assuming that sort of. Uh, the office, in, in, in a sense. So I think they would generally be pleased. But there is this row now about that returns agreement um, and the talk about talking to the EU about coming to a returns agreement, which would involve actually taking uh, a number of, of uh, asylum seekers from Europe and, and uh, settling them in the UK. And the Tories see uh, a weak flank there and they've gone after him on it. But what's interesting that is actually pretty much identical to something that Rishi Sunak has said that he would like to do. And what you're then into is a discussion about, well, actually, who is most likely to be able to, to deliver that? And the Tories have gone after him on it, despite it being similar to what they're proposing to do, because they see, actually, this is an opportunity to talk about him wanting to basically undo Brexit and reverse Brexit and things like that. And they still think that Brexit is a key card that they, they can play. Um, but actually, I think what's interesting is if you look at where voters are on this, I think Keir Starmer has got this about right. Voters don't generally support the Rwanda plan. Um, They don't really think the government has made a difference despite its rhetoric. And he's trying to walk a bit of a middle ground. Uh, And I think it's a well, clearly a well-polled, well-put-together policy intervention. I think they'll be pretty pleased with the way it's played this morning. Mm. I hate to break out an ardent agreement on on everything this morning, but... um, (laughs) (laughs) I do apologise. But, but, you know, Chris is right. It's, um, you know, there's something in this for everybody, really, isn't there? You know, for the... For the more muscular sun readers, there's lots of words about smashing the criminal gangs and freezing their assets and treating them like terrorists, and it's all very warm, full of testosterone. And <laughs> um, and actually, on the face of it, feels like a quite good idea, and I'm not entirely sure why no one has thought of it before, if I'm going to be brutally honest, mm. because, you know, they are um, traffickers in evil and human misery, um, and they absolutely should be uh, treated like terrorists, like anybody else that 
makes an awful lot of money shipping drugs, humans, mm. you know, yeah. uh, uh, guns from you know one place to another. Um, it is a you know I suspect a, a extremely lucrative exercise. Uh, and you know this bit of it, this messaging around, particularly the article in the Sun, is very strong on that. Uh, he's concentrated different messaging, uh, more nuanced messaging about returns policy, uh, an EU-wide returns policy for the Times. Um, and the reality is, I mean, look, I think we've all pretty much come to the agreement, you know, that you know, depending on where you are on the spectrum, you know, the Rwanda policy is. Uh, ineffective, unworkable, expensive, and uh, inhumane, um, uh, and against kind of natural justice, uh, the only way that you can realistically tackle issues like small boats uh, and wider immigration issues is through having a series of returns policies. Mm. Um, you know, it, that should be aligned with other things like safe and legal routes, but safe and legal routes on its own will not get you there you know, you have to have the ability as a country to be able to return people uh, once you've processed them and found them to be um, uh, not legitimate asylum seekers. It is the only way to get it. Now, <laughs> whether they secure a uh, agreement with Europe or it ends up being, you know, discussed and roundabout for the next four million years, we shall <laughs> wait and see. And I, you know, uh, the other thing I, I, I'm slightly sceptical about, I think it, only works in terms of us and France if we have a processing centre mm. uh, on the French border. <laughs> uh, good luck, good as they say. Yeah. Good luck, as they say, with that. I mean, you know, they don't have one now and it doesn't stop people coming to Calais for sure, but um, uh, I don't think they want to put up a sign and advertise, come here, come one, come all. <laughs> uh, so, again, that, that feels a little bit perhaps, you know, heroic to me, but it is certainly... Um, uh, an interesting uh, exercise in uh, different messaging for different targeted groups, uh, ripping the plaster of something that, uh, you know, as Chris said, would be, you know, arguably perceived as a weak flank. I noticed that, you know, the poll ratings for Rishi Sunak's immigration uh, policies are, you know, going through the floor pretty rapidly. Um, so maybe they've just spotted a, <laughs> spotted an opportunity and moved into it, you know, pretty damn quick. Mm. Um, it does open a much weaker flank for Keir Starmer, though, which is around uh, the EU and his uh, much more cosy relationship with the EU, um, uh, and that potentially has danger. But I just, I think most of the voters have just moved past Brexit. It's mm. it's like some slightly embarrassing uncle in a you know who's had a bit too much to drink and you just want to put him in a corner and just pretend that you didn't invite him to the party. Um, it's, you know, so yeah, I think they've just turned off the whole thing and pretended that it had nothing to do with them, Gov, and shuffling the shoes and you know, yeah. and looking down at the ground. What I do think is interesting about this is that clearly the the challenge of small boats immigration etc is a, is a big challenge for the country but it's a challenge that is an international one you know millions of people are on the move around the world driven by conflict and by famine and by climate change and things like this and i think there's a really valid conversation about the fact that the conventions we agreed you know 70 years ago or whatever maybe aren't the right ones uh, to govern what is an entirely different situation now the only way you can do that is by having conversations at an international level and I think what the Conservatives are basically trying to do is say, what we're going to do is basically throw up the, the sort of shutters 
and just keep people out. And it's a very sort of, you know, Britain alone sort of conversation around how we do this. Keir Starmer, really interestingly, has gone to The Hague to start his conversation there. And, you know, apart from the political optics of this and how it looks and the language that's been used, etc., there is maybe there the beginnings of a really interesting policy solution where he recognises that we can only have a solution to this big problem by operating internationally and really thinking afresh uh, about the challenge, challenge we face. And if, if there is the beginning of a, a sort of serious response to this uh, challenge, then, you know, uh, I think that's to be welcomed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, it's a little different to Rishi Sunak, you know, signing up to Horizon again. Um, uh, you know, um, there are some things that just, you know, function better on, you know, uh, across borders rather than, uh, on a sort of nationalist level. Um, and I think uh, those that will recall the, um, I think it was Caroline Wheeler's Sunday Times piece around this time last year, where a senior member of the government floated the prospect that bit by bit you'd have these uh, individual deals being struck with uh, with Europe because there are just some things that make more sense to work with Europe on. Um, uh, and it was fiercely, fiercely denied uh, by the government at the time, and oh no, this is terrible. But you know, th- this is a you know a sensible direction of travel. You know, we the um, I don't want to get into my traditional you know uh, moan about Boris, but you know, <laughs> you know, it was a bounced deal. Bits of it were botched, um, and you know, people are left to kind of unpick bits of it that just don't work very well. Mm. Northern Ireland Protocol, you know, uh, individual agreements that we should have with Europe and and the direction of travel, I think, regardless of who uh, is uh, the next government, will be increasingly to have these bespoke deals Mm. from certain areas. Yeah. Uh, Well, Labour's plans on illegal migration, botched deals on Brexit... Uh, There's lots to discuss by way of vision and leaders' visions and how they get blown off course, actually. Uh, We're going to discuss that next. Stay with us. This is Whitehall Sources. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Let me tell you about the resident hotel where I just stayed. That's right, I have been to the resident in Liverpool for a lovely, lovely stay. I have to be honest, it was wonderful. And I'm not just saying that, I promise you it was great. The warmest of welcome from the lovely reception team, including a lovely welcome card signed by Megan and the resident team. We were offered a map, we were offered guidance on where to go for food and for drinks. The location was great. We had several activities in Liverpool. We had a friend's birthday dinner. Then we were bowling, we were doing all of that stuff. 
And all of it was within a 10 minute walk of where the hotel was, which was perfect. Not only that, we had guidance on the best local restaurants and bars where we could also get discounts as a result of staying at the resident. The little kitchen in the hotel room was very, very helpful for coffee drinkers. Unbelievably, I'm not one. There's a little coffee machine right there as well. Do you know what was lovely as well? City centre location, double-double glazing. There was the outdoor window, then an indoor window. No noise, I slept like an actual log. Beautiful room, very spacious, well-equipped, lovely hotel, lovely staff, lovely location. Take this as a personal endorsement. I've been there, done that, and you should do the same. Stay at the resident. This is Whitehall Sources. Thanks so much for being with us. It's Callum McDonald, Kirsty Buchanan, Chris Wilkins, and we're soon to be joined by David Muir as well, who was Director of Strategy for Gordon Brown. Because even as we've discussed new policy announcements, new directions this week, also this week, Theresa May's book is out, uh, which is an exciting moment for you both, I'm sure. Are you expecting to be in it, Chris? I'm sort of hoping not to be in it, if I'm honest, but I'll definitely pick up a copy and flick through. <laughs> Kirsty, you've, you bet you, you'll be in there somewhere, won't you? Um, I don't think it's that kind of book, really. Yeah, I think I've watched her on a few interviews, and um, uh, let's give it a, a plug: the, yes, abuse, of the power, abuse of power. Con- I was about to confronting do that. injustice in public life by Theresa May out at all reputable bookshops today. <laughs> um, uh, uh, is about issues. It's not about. It's not mm. a you know a traditional memoir. It's about what she has learned about, mm. you know, service and public life. I think if you're going to stretch it, there are some implicit criticisms in there mm. about people who view, uh, you know, being a being an MP or as a minister as a pursuit of power in its own right. Um, and Theresa May's uh, central tenant in this, um, and actually the central tenant of her entire kind of life in in politics, is never losing sight of the fact that you are there. Uh, to serve the public, not in the pure pursuit of power for power's sake. And when you forget that, this book is about how Mm. uh, you lose sight of the the very people that put you there. And actually, it's your job to to champion them and look after them and advance their cause, not advance your uh, greasy, you know, climb up the the ministerial pole, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, one thing that uh, this actually, Kirsty, prompted you to think about was how... Theresa May, how prime ministers in general can be blown off course, actually. They come into office with a really clear vision and strategy, potentially, of what they want to achieve, what they want to do, and often they are remembered for other things. So by way of getting us started, I want to take you back to July 2016, when Theresa May became prime minister. It means we believe in the union. The precious, precious bond between England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. But it means something else that is just as important. It means we believe in a union, not just between the nations of the United Kingdom, but between all of our citizens, every one of us, whoever we are and wherever we're from. That means fighting against the burning injustice that if you're born poor, you will die on average nine years earlier than others. If you're black, you're treated more harshly by the criminal justice system than if you're white. If you're a white working class boy, you're less likely than anybody else in Britain to go to university. 
if you're at a state school, you're less likely to reach the top professions than if you're educated privately. If you're a woman, you will earn less than a man. If you suffer from mental health problems, there's not enough help to hand. If you're young, you'll find it harder than ever before to own your own home. But the mission to make Britain a country that works for everyone means more than fighting these injustices. If you're from an ordinary working class family, life is much harder than many people in Westminster realise. You have a job, but you don't always have job security. You have your own home, but you worry about paying the mortgage. You can just about manage, but you worry about the cost of living and getting your kids into a good school. If you're one of those families, if you're just managing, I want to address you directly. I know you're working around the clock. I know you're doing your best, and I know that sometimes life can be a struggle. The government I lead will be driven not by the interests of the privileged few, but by yours. We will do everything we can to give you more control over your lives. Well, that's two minutes of Theresa May speaking on Downing Street when she became Prime Minister. Um, Chris, what do you think listening to that? Oh, dear. Tear me out. Um, uh, well, <laughs> you know what? It's interesting. Listen to that and, and listening to Theresa recently as she's been out there mm. doing interviews about this book um, that, that she's published. You know, I, I'm reminded of, um, uh, if you remember, I think it was from the 80s and 90s, Bullseye and, and Jim Bowen and his famous catchphrase, have a look at what you could have won. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, that that's the real Theresa May and the book is the real Theresa May. And that is what her premiership could have been uh, about. And uh, there, there is a, there's a danger, so you must stop me, uh, of uh, re- reheating the 2017 election campaign too much. Um, but, you know, when... Uh, we decided to call the snap election in 2017. That was what that election was supposed to be about. So everything you've just heard in that clip, because that is what Theresa May was all about. It was about um, giving a voice to the voiceless and all these things and and tackling the burning injustices. Um, uh, And it just completely disappeared in that campaign because she ended up talking about something completely different, which was, of course, Brexit. Um, And so... I just think, you know, that that is the prime minister she could have been listening back to that, mm. um, but was never allowed to do it. I've written down here, Kirsty, as I was listening to that, vision versus legacy, which I suppose is the whole theme of our conversation today. But as you, as you listen back to that, just two minutes of what was a sort of four or five minute speech, by the way, but a couple of minutes of Theresa May setting out who she is, what she believed in, versus, as Chris says, what became her reality. What, what, what are you thinking? How are you feeling about it? Yeah, well, the reality was that, you know, she wanted to create a country that worked for everyone um, and the interest of the quote-unquote privileged few uh, won out, jammed up Parliament, uh, destabilised her government and led to a whole series of uh, political events that we uh, don't need to rehash in great detail for now. Um, I'm struck that the top of that speech refers to um, her positioning herself as being the inheritor of what she calls David, i.e. Cameron's true legacy. Mm. Uh, She positions herself as a uh, one-nation prime minister who wants to campaign on social justice. Um, And whilst it's, you know, personally delightful for me to, you know, to, to look at all the yash queening 
that she gets now because, you know, uh, what follows just only served to emphasise, you know, that she is a woman of great integrity and decency. Um, so that is sort of personally pleasing to me. But the thing that I always used to to say is, you know, I wish, you know, people could say, I, I went on a lot of kind of UK tours with Theresa May and mm. I saw her talk to a lot of people, um, many in very difficult circumstances, uh, and I saw her talk to journalists um, at conference, and it was like two different people. You know, mm. one was uh, crushed and brought low by the unbelievable selfishness of Remainers on one side and Brexiteers on the other, and Corbyn's. You know, like in one on one sense, you're very lucky <laughs> to have the the opposition we had, and another we were we were deeply deeply unfortunate. Um, so, uh, so, so being bowed and crushed by that, and it completely consumed uh, her premiership, and seeing that sort of frustration of like, you know, <laughs> this is this is not about you. This is about the people that voted for Brexit, and just her inability to get uh, uh, you know, the vested interest to see that and 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 push it through. But but what I really liked about uh, what I like about this book is it gives her a chance to kind of course correct what. Um, what her premiership should always have been about. If you, you know, I've seen a few interviews with her over the last, you know, couple of weeks, and the things that she cites as being most proud of is putting uh, the 2050 net zero target into law, uh, which is one of the greatest economic opportunities this country has, if if played right. Um, but but more importantly, I think for her, you know, getting the Modern Slavery Act through, she's setting up a global commission on modern slavery. I think this is kind of the third chapter of Theresa May in public life, with you know, Home Secretary, very successful Home Secretary, and a Prime Minister squashed between the Skiller and Charybdis of the Conservative Party. Um, and now I'm, you know, I, I really hope that she gets to to be able to show people you know, the passion and the belief that she has in this cause. It is real. I've seen her talk about it with, with you know, with great enthusiasm, great knowledge and great conviction. Um, and I'd like, you know, uh, I'd like for that to be able to be her, her true legacy, mm. uh, not, you know, um, not for, for what she has been hitherto known as. The other thing that struck me is we've almost come full circle in, 20 years, you know, she, she stood on Downing Street steps and said she wanted to, you know, create a country that works for everyone. We now have a country that doesn't really work for anybody. Mm. Um, uh, we're all uh, either desperate or just about managing, even if we've got pretty decent salaries these days. Yeah. Um, and in 2006, when Theresa May was um, party chairman, uh, she uh, famously or infamously, if you like, referred to the Conservatives as the nasty party. Mm. And I think, you know, in trying to, you know, we can go back to, 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 to Cameron in a bit on this, but in trying to tackle this insurgent populist right within the party, not only um, has it eaten up, you know, a ridiculous amount of, you know, parliamentary and political kind of bandwidth, uh, it's also pushed the Tories back into the very thing that they were hoping to, you know, the hydra that they were hoping to cut off in the, you know, uh, in the challenge posed by UKIP. Um, uh, you know, in the run-up to sort of 2010. Chris, when it comes to vision versus legacy, and Theresa May specifically, um, we, I mean, we've covered a few of the, you know, the, the sort of forces that were working against her. Is is that just politics? Is is it actually naive to have such a such a vision 
that may, in the reality of a political world and being prime minister, just be impossible. That's just not how it how it works. Well, look, there'll always be excellent events that you can't can't predict, and that's that is the nature of it, and that's nature of being prime minister. But I do think. Now, vision is a word that's that, that's used a lot and turned around, particularly in the context of people say Keir Starmer needs one, etc., etc. I think I think really it's about narrative. You, you, as, as a as a political leader, you have to have a really clear narrative, um, and you can exemplify that through maybe three, four, five sort of key things uh, that you actually really hone in on and focus and, and and deliver, and that sort of evidence is what you're trying to say, and that's how you define your legacy and what people say uh, uh, about you. Um, so I think every political leader sort of needs that. Um, but then there are choices you make along the way as well. I mean, one thing that I sort of just alluded to with, with Theresa, for example, I mean, I completely agree with everything Kirstie's said there. And, you know, I was really proud to go and work for Theresa number 10 because that is the, the politician she is. She absolutely um, believes everything you've just heard about in that speech, and that was what she wanted her premiership to be about. But you know, she she made the choice, I mean, ultimately, Theresa and I fell out slightly, she made the choice in 2017 to junk that during the election campaign and talk about nothing else but Brexit. That was a, a political choice that was short-termist and, you know, ultimately went wrong. And because it went wrong, she then couldn't get back to that agenda because she then didn't have a majority and she was able to be kicked around by the sort of right of the party. Um, and so all of that stuff that she really wanted to deliver was lost um, because of a short-term political choice uh, that, that was made. So politicians make, make their choices. Um, but at the same time, we also need to recognise kind of what the what the limits on the power of prime ministers are, mm. I think. Um, and you know, to give you an example of that, one of the things we talked about early on in Theresa's time was that in um, as we went to conference in 2016, um, we wanted to make a central part of her narrative that what we called the the big decisions narrative. Um, and this was basically to say, look, actually, one of the reasons Brexit's coming back is because there are just big things in this country that people aren't addressing and the politicians have ducked for too long. And she was going to be the person who actually got to grips with them. It was interesting. I was reading something about Rishi Sunak the other day in the, in the newspapers. And it was almost word for word some of the stuff his team were briefing about the stuff we were talking about in 2016. Mm. But the example was she was going to go to conference and say, look, Basically, there are these big things that politicians have ducked. I recognise that that was a big part of kind of what drove people in their frustration to sort of go out and vote in this way. I'm going to get to grips with them. And then she was going to bounce out of conference. And one of the first announcements we then had on the grid to make after conference that year was to give the go-ahead to the third runway at Heathrow. Um, you know, something that had been around for ages and just hadn't happened. But, you know, lots of people felt was key to the productivity challenge in this country. So we did that, you know, she made the speech and then uh, a couple of weeks later came out and, and absolutely we made the announcement uh, of the third runway at Heathrow. Do you see a third runway at Heathrow now? Um, no. And the reason for that is because the moment that was announced by the Prime Minister, okay, right, it's back into the courts and then there's appeals and all these sorts of things, et cetera, et cetera. And... And that, I'm not making an anti-court argument, I'm just saying sure. that we also have to be realistic about actually what the powers of, of a prime minister are. You can you can shoot for the moon, but actually they're sort of not as powerful as we sometimes think that they are. There are all sorts of checks and balances rightly uh, on their power, um, but that also has an impact. So you've got both choices they make along the way, external events that you can't predict, but also those limits on their power 
um, that mean you can't always deliver what you want to. That is a good point. Well made. Um, right, let's bear all of that in mind. And just when I say the next name, what do you think of? David Cameron. I truly believe we're on the brink of something special in our country. We can make Britain a place where a good life is in reach for everyone who is willing to work and do the right thing. Our manifesto is a manifesto for working people. And as a majority government, we will be able to deliver all of it. Indeed, it is the reason why I think majority government is more accountable. Three million apprenticeships, more help with childcare, helping 30 million people cope with the cost of living by cutting their taxes, building homes that people are able to buy and own, creating millions more jobs that give people the chance of a better future. And yes, we will deliver that in-out referendum on our future in Europe. As we conduct this vital work, we must ensure that we bring our country together. As I said in the small hours of this morning, we will govern as a party of one nation, one United Kingdom. That means ensuring this recovery reaches all parts of our country, from north to south, from east to west. And indeed, it means rebalancing our economy, building that northern powerhouse. That's David Cameron speaking in May 2015. And once again, (laughs) isn't it amazing listening back to what, eight years ago and hearing the same issues floating around? Uh, Crucially, I suppose, Chris, in the middle of that, he said, uh, we're going to hold an in-out referendum on our membership of the EU. And all the rest of it. I mean, can anyone remember what else he said in that clip? Other than that, I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. And and I think it comes back to this point about, you know, the the short-term political decisions that politicians sometimes make for tactical reasons rather than strategic ones. And you know, ultimately, that that's what he had, had done when he went to Bloomberg and made a speech announcing that there would be this, this in-out referendum. You know, we can uh, argue endlessly about whether it was a good idea or not, but it was done for short-term tactical advantage, not for long-term strategic uh, reasons. Uh, and, of course, it came to well, has come to define his premiership. And actually, David and his team had been working uh, for some time uh, on what was a life chances agenda that they called it. A really interesting piece of work had been done. And it was you know, similar to some things that Theresa Lace talked about. Um, but the whole thing went out the window because suddenly there was this referendum that they were committed to, which, uh, and I think that's the thing. In politics, it's so difficult to maintain strategic discipline and think strategically at all times um and you get sort of uh sidetracked all the time one of the things that used to uh really annoy me i think was that you know in in downing street and Kirsty will speak to this but in downing street you know the day starts um by the team gathering around for it used to be the cabinet table in my day you'd gather around the cabinet table uh, and we'd spend half an hour talking about what the newspapers are saying that day and what was the Telegraph leader column saying and, and things like this. And I said, this is irrelevant. This is not, we don't need to be doing this. What we need to be talking about is kind of what are people in the country concerned mm. about? What are they listening to on their local radio news and things like that and reflect their concerns. But politics is so often driven by that short-term tactical advantage, uh, tactical considerations, um, rather than the strategic. Uh, and it's rare that you get a truly strategic leader, mm. uh, I'm afraid, and that, that's the problem. Kirsty? 
Um, yes. Uh, I mean, look, I feel I need to stick up for the media. Uh, <laughs> Thank but you. I, but I also feel the need to say that actually, you know, uh, the political pulse and understanding the political pulse of the country has become a good deal more sophisticated with the growth of focus group polling and uh, increasingly sophisticated polling, uh, you know, around, you know, people's preferences you know, where their values are, you know, we the, the traditional kind of, you know, you're broadly, you know, centre-right, therefore you think this, or you're broadly centre-left, therefore you think that, I think is one of the things that slightly got thrown out of the window with Brexit. Um, and people are much more, and, you know, the, the, the decline in the old industries that, you know, my dad was a minor and he voted Labour and his dad was a minor and he voted Labour, et cetera, and I'm Labour till I die. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of that has has gone and people are much more motivated by values these days. Mm. Um, and if you understand the values that motivate people, it makes it much easier to talk to them. I mean, I think, you know, what Cameron did effectively was take that image of, you know, the nasty party, uh, which had really bad poll ratings at the time that he you know, took over um, and, you know, and did a pretty decent, albeit not very long-lasting, uh, rebrand job uh, on the Conservative Party. And it wasn't just kind of the flimsy stuff around, you know, uh, let's make our blue tree green or let's talk about hugging a hoodie. Um, he expended an enormous amount of political capital fighting his own party uh, over same-sex marriage bill. Um, and getting that into legislation because he thought it was the right thing to do, and it was where the vast majority of people in the you know in the kind of twenty first century you know were now you know lo love is love and you know what's the problem outside of you know a few hundred thousand people uh, in the Conservative Party. So actually, twenty thirteen was probably the best of Cam Cameron and the worst of Cameron because on the one hand you know, hats off for making real and lasting change, which has, you know, very few prime ministers can say that they have, you know, created that level of kind of totemic, you know, society impact. Um, but it was also the, the point at which he caved on the uh, the rise of UKIP and decided that he was going to go to Europe unbelievably naively and see if he could wrangle some concessions out of them that would stave off a referendum. Uh, you know, the... One of the few things that you can always bank on in life is death taxes and EU intransigence. Um, <laughs> and uh, thus it came to pass. So he came back with the thinnest of gruel, which no amount of good comms could hide, was, a, was, was, was hardly a deal at all, let alone a, you know, a good or a bad one. Um, and then that just pushed him into the, to the, you know, to the corner of having to say, right, you know, let the people decide. And let's, uh, I think it was Cameron that said, you know, we need to stop banging on about Europe, ha-ha, <laughs> um, uh, as opposed to it just consuming the party for the next decade um, and pushing it back, pushing it back to where it was, which mm. is, you know, widespread perception that, you know, public services are crumbling. It doesn't represent the values of ordinary working people or just about, you know, managing people anymore. And some of this is about, you know, events, dear boy, events, to coin the very famous Macmillan phrase, mm. uh, and he should know because I think the Profumo <laughs> scandal was on his watch. Um, uh, some of it's about events, but but some of it is about, you know, whether you just get plum good luck or not. You know, um, you know, you make one decision that goes horribly wrong and then you're kind of stuck with that. And Chris is right in between the courts. Uh, 
and you're trying to manage your own parliamentary party and in Theresa's case, the, the parliamentary arithmetic of the post-17 general election just meant that there was an awful lot of just plum bad luck there as well, you know. Um, and it's interesting to note that that phrase is now being circulated about Rishi Sunak by admittedly people who are not the greatest fans of Rishi Sunak to try and create a alternative narrative to the one that Downing Street's trying to push out at the moment, which is that, you know, he's very well-intentioned, but he's just an unlucky general. Mm. Um, and, that you know, that sense of, you know, you'll hear a lot more of that kind of, you know, uh, it popped up on his trip to G20 that, you know, he means well, he's a good guy, he's trying really hard, but he's just pretty unlucky. It's an interesting point there, isn't it? Because, you know, when, when things go wrong in politics, they, they do just seem to, to snowball and keep going wrong. And, um, you know, Kirsty and I worked on this together. Um, you know, 2017, um, Theresa went to conference. Uh, so post the election, um, she had to make a conference speech. And, you know, it was not a great time. You said, sat down with her and said, you know, what what is it you want to say? And absolutely, we had a really interesting conversation where she said, that I'm in politics to give a voice to the voiceless. That's what I want this speech to be about. I think if people were to sit down and read her 2017 conference speech, I think they'd find it really quite personal and quite interesting. The problem is that somebody presented her with the P45. She started mm. coughing. Then the letters fell off the, the backdrop of, of, of the stage. You know, you, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. But when when it starts to go wrong and you just begin to sort of, people think you're just unlucky or unfortunate, it just seems to snowball like that. And then that becomes the prevailing narrative. And once you're in that spiral, it's very, very difficult to reverse. Mm. I've just accepted the invitation of Her Majesty the Queen to form a government. My name's David Muir, and I was Director of Strategy to Prime Minister Gordon Brown. This will be a new government with new priorities. And I've been privileged to have been granted the great opportunity to serve my country. And at all times, I will be strong in purpose, steadfast in will, resolute in action, in the service of what matters to the British people meeting the concerns and aspirations of our whole country. David, that was Gordon Brown in June 2007. I know that you joined him in 2008. Between what you heard from him in 2007 and what you walked into in 2008, how clear was the vision from Prime Minister Gordon Brown? I think it was clear. I mean, he had set out his stall about kind of continuity in some areas and change in others. But effectively, by 2008, you really started to see the storm clouds gather, the the kind of starting point around the global financial crisis. My dominant memory of 2008 is is just weak. It was almost felt like week on week you could start to see the kind of stresses and strains in financial markets, obviously kind of, you know, building, you know, building towards, you know, a a crescendo that fall, which is a kind of useful, you know, useful reminder about how, you know, events, you know, can really change your agenda, you know, very, very quickly. Mm. When it comes to continuity and change, can you can you remember what his vision was? What what Brown was really determined to do? 
what he was, you know, what he was determined to do in terms of like on the continuity side of things was, you know, to continue on public service reform, to continue the London Challenge, um, which had been started by Andrew Adonis and, and Anthony Blair, continue to kind of push through on that. He also commissioned Lord Darcy for the Darcy review of the, the NHS, which is about kind of emp- empowering the front line of the NHS and continuing to kind of push through on really challenging targets which would lead to kind of better outcomes in the the, the NHS and it's important to remember that at the end of uh, Gordon's premiership satisfaction uh, with the NHS was at its highest waiting lists were at the lowest and there was you know really big improvements in the the treatment of cancer in terms of the the change element you know Gordon had a very clear idea about what our position should be in Iraq which is to be out of it and to kind of focus, you know, focus efforts much more around, you know, Afghanistan. But the, the, the continuity, you know, was on kind of new Labour's belief in investing and reforming public services. And, and the change in particular was on the kind of foreign policy side, which was getting a graceful exit from, from Iraq while still supporting our, our allies. Mm. You mentioned then, of course, that the storm clouds of 2008 gathering. Can you remember what it was like at that point as you as you kind of saw that happening, anticipated that happening perhaps, and and had to do, I imagine, some pretty severe course correcting in order to try to try to absorb the impact of said storm. I mean, I was you know privileged to sit in on on cabinet meetings, and it felt almost weekly there would be briefings by Alistair on kind of stresses and strains and and the wholesale funding markets, which in the end, you know, the, the, those stresses and strains overwhelmed the Royal Bank of Scotland. It's a very good example of kind of cabinet government as well, which is, you know, there was frequent briefings about that that you know the cabinet were aware and that gave Gordon lots of time to prepare for the worst case scenario and the worst case scenario did did in fact happen. And he really accelerated that planning. I vividly recall this, um, that Gordon, Sarah and the kids went away on holiday to to Lewis, um, but in Gordon's typical way, he was working through the holiday and um, I went up to see him and, and, and he was in a, a study room and the floor was littered with like books and different kind of papers. And I picked up uh, one thing that was on the floor and it was um, Ben Bernanke's PhD thesis that Gordon had got his hand, hands on, which was looking at, you know, the Great Crash and the Great Depression and the fiscal and monetary response in the 1930s. This is what Bernanke, the, uh, the then head of the Fed Reserve, had done as a PhD student. And so Gordon was just like voraciously reading uh, reading up on kind of previous crises. He'd obviously gone through a crisis before. People forget the Asian financial crisis in 1999, which he kind of played a front row seat in, in, in terms of some of the resolution around that. For my money, he's to be commended by his like foresight and kind of taking the signal from the noise that something bad was going to happen and make, making sure that we were prepared and, you know, ahead of where the ball may, ball may land. And he was ably assisted in that 
mm. um, by Shruti Federa and by the late um, Jeremy Haywood, who continued to kind of feed into him with thoughts about um, how we could respond to the crisis should things deteriorate further, in which they, which they did. At which point, or is there a point, when when you are seeing the storm clouds gathering, when the Prime Minister is actively, you know, very deliberately engaging with and planning for the approaching storm, is there a point where it feels like everything else ends up on the back burner? Everything else that may have been a priority is actually just going to be completely overwhelmed by, by this looming crisis? Yeah, you started to see the peripheral vision, as I would describe it, narrow over the summer. Gordon was in a kind of challenging position in terms of his leadership. We were building uh, towards the party conference, which was in the end to take place right at the the heart of the, the crisis, where Gordon uh, made his infamous No Time for a Novice speech. And from that point on... Gordon makes his speech, we have the collapse of Lehman, and then Gordon, straight from party conference, went straight out to New York. And from that point on, from that point in September all the way, I would say, until November, nothing else mattered apart from the crisis response. Wow. Like, there was, you know, unless it was an absolutely kind of urgent uh, urgent decision or it was something to do with... Uh, the nation's security, pretty much everything was kind of screened out from that point. Gordon, again, you know, the the other thing that he did was he reshuffled his cabinet. He brought in uh, Peter Mandelson. He created like an economic war council, effectively, Mm. um, which was to create a a cross-government response to the financial crisis. And so pretty much uh, from, from from September through to November, we were completely... Uh, locked into the domestic response to the crisis. But Gordon was very, very clear that for much of the praise that Roosevelt gets for his response uh, to the the crisis, where he failed was there was a famous London summit in the 1930s where they couldn't agree an international response to the Great Depression. And so Gordon's kind of pivoted quite quickly from November with the chairmanship of the G20 to start to think about what the global response to the crisis would be, because ultimately that was the only way to kind of get get through this. And then there was an intensive period of shuttle diplomacy that took place then, I think kind of from December onwards, where Gordon met with different leaders of the G of the G20 in order to kind of start to establish the the, the agenda and priorities for the G20 that, that would then take place in in London in April um, of that of that year. And I remember at the time, I mean my concern, I remember talking to to Mike Allen, who was then Gordon's director of communications. I mean I was starting to get concerned that we were almost ramping up the expectations uh, for the summit to a point where you couldn't actually realise uh, some of the aspirations for the summit. And I remember talking to Gordon about this and the look of disbelief as I was expressing some kind of concern about letting expectations get way ahead. And he said, you know, but 
this is exactly why I'm doing it, David, because I want them to look over the precipice. Um, So it was very deliberate on Gordon's part to really build up the expectations about this in order to make sure that the cost of failure would be very, very high, not just for him, but for other leaders. Mm -hmm. It sounds as though, David, that that time was so tunnel visioned and not in a bad way. Obviously, there was a huge crisis to deal with. Does, does that breed any sort of resentment that, that what had been the strategic vision previously gets sidelined? Is there a kind of frustration that, that something has, has knocked all of that off course? Uh, I mean, I guess if you get tunnel vision on something that, is, that doesn't in the grand scheme of things count, but this was about the financial blood of the the economy i mean it was about if you don't if you don't get this right nothing else matters if Mm. people can't get money out of cash machines nothing matters you know your your plan for public service investment and reform kind of goes out you know goes out the window so this was like it was absolutely foundational that you had to get this right domestically and then the best way to fix this domestically as well was to have a really significant, you know, inter- international response. And, you know, you know, even Gordon's detractors would turn around and say, you know, his performance on that front was as he promised on the steps of Downing Street, which is to be steadfast and resolute. And he was, you know, those are two, dis- you know, descriptions that I would say played out in real time you know during during the crisis one of the things that i i don't think that is properly understood i remember one morning coming into the office and gordon came down to take a call with wen jibao who is the then premier of of china and you know the chinese effectively committed to having a fiscal response that was 20% of their gdp i mean it was absolutely enormous and actually that Chinese, that Chinese leadership, which Gordon kind of pushed upon them, you know, was was a kind of crucial lever in the, the uptick in growth that we then started to see in the second half of 2009. Mm. I suppose as well, there's a consideration in all of this. And as we, can, you know, if we on this episode, we're focusing on, I suppose, vision versus legacy. And you can think about Blair, yeah. who was all about education, and I suppose the Iraq war really defined him. You can think about Cameron, who said, you know, this is the end of conversations about Europe, and behold, there was a referendum that was the end of his premiership. Theresa May, in her sort of speech in Downing Street, she said, you know, giving a voice to the voiceless and, and, and speaking up for those who perhaps can't speak up for themselves. And in the end, Brexit was the kind of, was the end of, of her premiership as well. I wonder if there's something in considering one of the attributes of a good leader, they have to be able to flex with these outside pressures that can really come to dominate both the strategic direction while in office, but then also becomes their legacy. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think when you when you think about premierships, they're always defined by how that leader asked answered a significant question. And what you realize is very infrequently are they asked a question that they would like, mm. that they have to answer. But, you know, you, you've, you've kind of identified, you know, three, three premierships there. I mean, the thing, that I, the thing that I'm always fascinated about in premierships is 
how frequently external events pose the major question of that premiership. And so therefore, the, to me, the, the test of a leader is how you answer that question. May not have been a question of their choosing, but how they answer it is ultimately how you define you know, their premiership, however short or long it is. And the thing that I'm increasingly struck by is how often those events come from overseas. Hmm. So the, the global financial crisis you know, started in the US and then infected the tributaries of the international financial system. And, you know, Britain got caught up in that, Europe got caught up, caught up in that, you know, as a, you know, as a result. If you look at the Atlee Premiership, which is a premiership that was defined about the rebuilding of a bankrupt Britain, but it was badly blown off course by the Korean War, which put real strain on very limited uh, resources and effectively meant that the austerity in Britain kind of continued, the rationing in Britain continued, which created great unpopularity and effectively, you know, undid the party. Mm. A premiership that is really interesting in terms of how it navigated external events, and I think it's underwritten and underexplored, is the two-step that Harold Wilson played in keeping Britain out of the Vietnam War while making sure that there wasn't a significant deterioration in the special relationship. I think that is a really under-examined and under-appreciated piece of statecraft um, uh, but, you know, by Wilson. But the net-net is so frequently premierships are defined by the ability of that premier to answer a question that has, that has come from overseas. Yeah, and uh, you know, obviously Churchill answered his with aplomb. Chamberlain, not so much. Um, but you know, as you go through these premierships, it's just striking how often it's events from overseas um, that define the premiership. Yeah, that's a very good point. Very, very good point. And with that in mind, what is what's Gordon Brown's uh, report card looking like? And and I wonder how much that is shaped by what prime ministers go on to do after their time in office has ended. I wonder if that sort of influences our perception of their legacy and how well they've answered those questions. Yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I kind of think in Gordon's premiership, you know, it was clearly the, the thing that dominated it was the global financial crisis. And even his detractors would, would turn around and say, you know, he answered that, that, that question mm. with, a, with a plum. I think the way he has conducted himself outside of office has been exemplary. Uh, you know, he's got a kind of clear set of areas that he's he's focused in on. He only intervenes in the UK, in, you know, in terms of, you know, issues where he is a very authentic voice, most noticeably around uh, the constitutional question in Scotland. So I think he's, you know, conducted himself with great decency and integrity post-premiership. He, he learned a lot during um, uh, the financial crisis and um, he's kind of fascinated in kind of crisis response full stop. Um, he and Mohammed El-Aryan and the Nobel Prize winner Michael Spence have actually got a book coming out at the end of this month called Perma Crisis, which is looking at some of the future crises that we are uh, we may already be in or may accelerate and worsen. And so, you know, the, the whole is issue of crisis management is something that continues to fascinate uh, 
garden and which he's very good at. Just as a concluding question then, um, Kirsty, is it inevitable that a Prime Minister leaves number 10 with their their vision in ruins and, you know, just a dim and distant memory and something else has come to define them? Is Is that always inevitable or can the two things marry up, that it is their vision that has defined them and how they've executed it? Uh, I, I can't think, to be fair, at the moment, off the top of my head of a modern prime minister who has got elected on a vision and been able to have the luck, the personality, the mathematics, the power to push it through. I mean, not even uh, Boris Johnson with his historic, uh, you know, his, his historic victory, um, and you know the, the the Brexit deal, you know, in the in the in the in the wind of his sails, not even he was able to control events, and he too had his uh, his premiership uh, crushed and forever defined by something other than that, um, uh, which will go down for most voters as uh, you know an infamous moment um, and the sort of beginning of the of the rot that the Conservative Party have yet to pull themselves out of. But what strikes me is it doesn't matter, you know how charismatic you are as a leader. You know, if you make one catastrophically bad judgment call or something kind of catastrophic, you know, uh, black swan event or whatever come to knock you off course, you know, all the talent, all the all the majority, all the power that you have in the world won't necessarily be enough to pull you out of it. I mean, they don't get much better as kind of political communicators than, than Blair. Um, but by 2003, after the back of the Iraq war, half the population wanted him to resign 60 percent of his own party uh thought he made a terrible decision by backing uh bush and going to war in iraq he was um uh you know bought low by this and was very depressed and some of his inner circle had to get a load of people to kind of jolly him and swing him around uh i don't know you know if if no one's read the Rawnsley book there's a there's a great bit in it where john prescott the unlikely peacemaker has a <laughs> has a meal uh, between uh, Gordon Brown, well, he hosts a meal between uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, um, uh, of which, unsurprisingly, both of them have a very different recollection of uh, Blair's offer to uh, stand down eventually and let Gordon Brown take the reins. Um, But, you know, that, I think, only happened at that time because he was brought so low and was so depressed uh by um by this decision he'd made and and the impact it had had on his legacy and you know there was a man that squandered a huge huge parliamentary majority and some you know great historic general election victories uh that could have really radically transformed our society but it all just got bogged down Mm. uh by you know by the iraq war and that is forever his legacy yeah chris same question can a vision and a legacy ever turn out to be the same thing I think it's very difficult uh, to think that they they can. Uh, th- to some extent, it's like it depends um, where where you where you start, what what you inherit. Um, so I, I suppose thinking back over uh, prime ministers and sort of recent prime ministers, you know, people look back at um, you know Thatcher's time in office, and and certainly ardent Thatcherites would say that that you know vision and legacy there are the same thing, but a much more nuanced view. Looking at it, would say, well, actually, there's a lot of uh, sort of retrospective uh, analysis applied to that, and of course, uh, Thatcher herself might not have been there 
for long if it weren't for the Falklands War, which helped to get through mm. uh, the 83 uh, uh, election. Um, Blair, you know, he uh, inherited uh, a country that was thought to be not in a great state. Um, and for a time, I think people felt, felt good about it. People felt it was being, uh, you know, that the vision there was being applied and, and that was good. And then, as, as Kirsty says, obviously, you know, you had 9-11 and then Iraq and, and suddenly that's all, all all gone out the window and, and, and difficult. But I think what maybe his um, example shows and a few others is it's kind of what prime ministers do afterwards mm. that helps to define um how they are seen so for thatcher there was a whole sort of industry around her of people who were determined to sort of define her legacy um and slightly maybe retrofit it um and so it you know divisive figure but in some quarters she's seen favorably um, Blair went on to set up the Tony Blair Institute, which is, you know, um, hugely influential now in various areas of, of policy doing work around the world. Um, but actually, you know, what it does for him is when he goes to America, he's absolutely fated. I mean, they love him over there, much as he's reviled by large uh, parts of the population here. Um, you know, Gordon Brown's gone on uh, to do uh, good things on the world stage, building on the work he did uh, during the financial crisis when he really brought the world together to find solutions to, to the financial crash. Uh, and, you know, we, we were talking earlier about Theresa May. You know, at the time, people thought, gosh, this is all disastrous, it's hard, it's all a mess, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I wonder now, particularly with this book and with the things she's talking about now, when people look back, they think, actually, do you know what, there was something there that maybe we didn't appreciate or didn't see at the time, but actually there's something there better than we thought at the time. So, you know, I guess when Prime Minister leave office, it doesn't have to be the end of their story. It's just the end of that chapter. And what they go on to do afterwards often helps to, uh, I think, reflect how people see them in the future. Yeah. And so just as a concluding question, David, is it then inevitable that a prime minister leaves number 10 with their vision that they set out with in in something of ruin <laughs> that they've not been able to kind of maintain that focus on that vision part you know because of other other factors but but is that inevitable that their vision becomes a distant memory look it's important to have the it's important to have the vision um because it uh, it anchors you and it focuses you but I am struck, as I said earlier, mm. by regardless of the vision, how clear that vision is, most premierships are ultimately defined not by that incoming vision, but how that prime minister has responded to events not of their choosing. And so, you know, on that point, I think, you know, you know if there's a Labour government, and, you know, Labour's got a clear, clear plan for government. You know, it's important to have that vision, but you also have the resilience. You have to have the resilience to think about, right, what happens if something comes up? And you need to start thinking about what those black swans could be. And the one that I'm kind of particularly kind of seized with, which may happen in a Stam or premiership, if, if he is to be elected, is the the challenges around the U.S.-China relationship in Taiwan. And so, if I was Keir, I would be reading up a lot around this because that is something that could happen uh, on his uh, on his watch, and that creates 
great strategic questions for, for Britain as a result. David, that is fascinating. Thank you very much. Thanks for your considerations. Really appreciate it. Chris Wilkins, Kirsty Buchanan and David Muir, thank you all very much indeed for joining us. Great to speak to you. Gosh, it's been a thought-provoking episode this week. Thank you very much for listening. So good to have you here on Whitehall Sources. We drop into your podcast feed every single week in order to bring you the latest insight on politics and to consider some of these big themes as well. Like today, does vision and legacy mean the same thing? Your thoughts are always, always welcome. We love reading out your emails, so do get in touch. Hello at whitehallsources.com is the email address, and we'll talk to you next week. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.